So it's our third year, but this is a first. We decided this, this year that it was time. For a long time, we've wanted to um, bring some new work of our own into the world to commission some, some work for the Third Coast Festival, and that's what we did this year. Um, we asked people to, uh, in April, you probably received this, we issued a, a call for proposals, asked people to send us a proposal for a short doc, a documentary between five and seven minutes long, and we chose the subject of thirst. And so you're wondering, well, why thirst? Well, we like the idea that thirst can be literal, as in parched, and we liked how it can be metaphorical, as in search for a better life, or one proposal that was search for uh, thirst for revenge. We liked how thirst lends itself to great audio effects, and you're going to hear all of those in the next hour. And we really liked how thirst sparks the imagination. We received about 80 proposals, and we chose four, each really which suggests a different interpretation of the idea of thirst. So you're going to hear the premiere of this work and meet the producers, but first I'm going to pass uh, the mic along to our esteemed John Hockenberry, a correspondent with Dateline NBC. Uh, John has never strayed far from his deep roots in radio, and last year won a Peabody for his series, The DNA Files. In all of his work on radio, TV, and in print, Hockenberry brings a unique vantage point, endless energy, wit, and an eagerness to take risks. Thank you, John. Thank you, Johanna. <clears throat> yeah, nev never strayed far from radio. I work for Dateline, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so uh, anyway, it's great to be here at the uh, sort of rainbow gathering meets the iPod festival here, the Third Coast. <laughs> I, lo I love this. You know, you hear people in the halls trading ambiences, you know, it's like, oh, wow, you have, you have mosquitoes? I, you know, I, I, have, I have wind from Alaska, you know. I love, I love being here. Um, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, we're going to hear all of the pieces. Then I'm going to do, I mean, because in, in some ways these, these pieces are motivated by, uh, and, I want, and I, I, you know, motivation is really kind of a theme here. These are motivated by a commission as opposed to some of the other motivations that, um, uh, produce the work that you do, a news story, uh, you know, desperate hunger, um, the kinds of motivations that, that cause independents to make pieces. This is a, a relatively unusual motivation, and uh, um, I think, you know, we can ask the question, how does the, this commissioning motivation affect how you approach a piece? And that'll be my first question to the panel, but we're going to hear all of the pieces in their entirety, and then I'm going to kind of very arbitrarily take them apart and try to figure out why certain choices were made. And then when we're done with that, we're going to open it to you because certainly the collective expertise out here is, um, is you know, far in excess of, of what mine is. It's been a long time since I, you know, sat down and tried to sketch out a radio piece all on my own. I've had some great collaborations over the years, but, uh, but it's been a long time since I was at KLCC using a TC-142. Um, you know, TC-142, you know what that is, you know, okay. Um, so, uh, so anyway, uh, let me just, by way of introduction to all of you, and we'll start with, uh, with Anne here and just go down to Sean on the end. Um, how does commissioning a story, you know, make a piece on thirst, affect how you even, and, and be as brief as you can, affect how you approach what the story is going to be? I think it made us, is this on? Yeah. yeah. I think it made us plan a lot more uh, because we had to write it out right away to write it as kind of a grant. So you had to get all your ducks in a row 
to kind of sell everyone on the idea. So you had to sort of storyboard right. the idea out first, and then, yeah. and then, I mean, did, did, did that affect your sound gathering in some ways? I mean, were you following the, the template, uh, or could you throw the net a little wider? In this situation, we could definitely throw the net wider because right. Johanna and Julie were really flexible. Yeah, but we pretty much stuck to our original idea that we had outlined. So. Yeah. Alex? Is this on? Okay. <laughs> Is that like a code word or something? <laughs> Nobody told me. It was, it was such a pleasure because ah, sure. uh, I didn't have to twist arms to get the story accepted. Once it was accepted, the basic idea, the script flowed, and I had it uh, written in an hour. So was it a relief then to commission something? It was a relief. It was a signal to the mind, go. Really? All right. Terrific. Sarah? Um, I mostly do news reporting, so I was really clear that if I was going to do something, I wanted to do something completely different than what I do in my daily life. So it was sort of a challenge to think about a, a more creative expression. So that's and Sean? Fundamentally, how it changed. Um, in terms of the process of putting the story together, I don't think it was any different, but it was different in, in terms of my normal job doing features and producing features for a host in that, you know, if, if I'm working on a story at my job and it doesn't work out, it's like, oh, well, we'll you know, go on to the next one, whereas this is like, I better, you know, come up with something. <laughs> and yeah. I really hope it's good. M most jobs are actually like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so. All right, well, let's begin with, um, with uh, Sarah Varney's piece. Uh, it was a collaboration with Paul Fry, correct? Uh, Paul Fry, actually, who's Paul. in Bhutan right now. Ah. Yeah. Uh, perhaps he'll feel lucky after I get through with you. you know. <laughs> um, anyway, th these are all great pieces that ver have very interesting ways of answering the question, how do you work thirst into a theme of a radio piece? And this is the first one, Thirst Becomes Misfire by Sarah Varney and Paul Fry. Let's listen. for hunger, thirst, fatigue, and boredom. I'll have my usual Nelly soup. Lettuce on toast and a cola, too. I'll have the same boss, the same as you. Me, too. Me, too. Me, too. Me, too. Wake up. Wake up. 
Okay, uh, let's start. Wake up! Get an icy cold Dr. Pepper. Quick antidote for hunger, thirst, fatigue, and boredom. One sort of focus group way of evaluating these pieces is to try to count how many people actually take a drink from their water glass during <laughs> the piece. And this one I saw about seven or eight. Um, now, you know, obviously there are a million different ways of doing a um, radio piece. Um, to explain your original conception and how much this deviates what you stated in your proposal was going to be the idea. Well, the original idea was, um, I was sort of fascinated with this idea that soda manufacturers um, essentially created this idea that soda um, quenches thirst when in fact it's a diuretic. Um, and that they ended up using these very sort of poppy tunes, particularly a lot of the stuff that you heard was from the 1940s, um, to kind of convince people that if they in fact took a sip of Dr. Pepper that somehow they would feel satisfied. Um, and so it was sort of playing around with that idea. We actually had found some um, archives from the Dr. Pepper Museum in Waco, Texas. You can imagine they actually staffed that. Um, and, uh, and so it was sort of playing around with some of those archives, but then also seeing if, in fact, we could create a piece that would also create thirst in the listener. Um, and I would say that we originally were sort of interested in kind of talking to scientists about and, and advertising designers and, and seeing how they actually did that. Um, I think we ended up sort of winging it and doing it on our own, so. Now, uh, describe to me the choice of the violin. Um, obviously, you know, you want that to evoke dryness and, you know, something, but, but explain to me how you structured that sound. How we structured it. Well, I mean, did you just say, you know, go into a room and play some violin ah. for me, or, or you know, think, <laughs> right. think really thirsty thoughts and play? I mean, how, <laughs> how did that work? Yeah, basically. So the violin's actually done by Ruben Moss, who's a 16-year-old just prodigy in San Francisco. He um, actually did a piece uh, about him last year for Michael Johnson's show, Hot Soup, at KQED. Um, and he's this amazing violin player. And I was really inspired by Sherry Delis's If piece last year. And I actually had everybody on the team listen to it. Um, and uh, they kept saying, well, you can't create that piece. You have to create a different piece. Um, so we listened to that piece. And I was really attracted to the sort of atonal violin. Um, and we had this sort of Saturday recording session. And in fact, when Ruben came in, we, at that point, the team, Paul Lankor, who's our engineer, Paul Frey, um, and I really weren't very, very far along kind of in the design, so we actually didn't really know what we wanted from him. And so Paul Lincor was just brilliant. He said, you know, Ruben, go into the studio. And we ended up playing for him um, like that Dr. Pepper, that really sort of peppy Dr. Pepper tune. And, and Paul would say, you know, imagine you've been in the desert for 10 days and you haven't had anything to drink and all you have stuck in your head is that freaking Dr. Pepper song. You know, how would you play it? Um, and so that's where you get that sort of really demonic, like, nee, 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 nee. Um, And then we would play um, the, the sounds of, of the guy running over the gravel or a dog panting. We'd play, we'd play him all of those songs. And we'd say, play them back for us or play along with them so we can get the, establish the same beat. Um, and uh, again, sort of what you were saying, we would actually say to him, you know, uh, play for us something that sounds just incredibly dry, you know, and then and kind of fatten it up as the, as the time goes on. Mm -hmm. How many people, uh, if they hadn't 
known beforehand that this was about thirst would have had thirst evoked just by listening to the sounds, do you think? Okay. So it's, it's, it's mixed. Um, and that, you know, sometimes that's an impossible question to ask. Um, I'm the most curious about your choice. I mean, in some ways you could have taken the materials that you had and put them in a sort of single arc where you go from, uh, you know, deprivation to satisfaction in some way. You chose to sort of undulate between them. Mm -hmm. um, why, why did you make that choice? Because, I mean, it's, in some ways the the deprivation of thirst is the most powerful thing about it. And, and we, 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 we have a moment of thirst, then we have a moment of, you know, hearing the water, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know that we actually, though, hear, I think you hear satisfaction towards the end, but I don't know that the protagonist, in a sense, who is both sort of, we like to call him the runner. <laughs> um, but the, the, the protagonist is also in some ways the violin as well. And I don't know that the, that the runner ever fully feels satisfied. And I think yeah, he's not carrying a water bottle. Right, no, <laughs> not carrying a water bottle. And so um, it's sort of this idea of kind of so close, so close. And, and then maybe towards the end, we kind of give him a little bit. But I think in my mind, actually, it's sort of, um, it's not so much between thirst and satisfaction as it is between um, sort of an ever-increasing desperation. Do you, I mean, I, mean I, I, I suspect that that might have been more successfully evoked over a longer arc because I think in some of the back and forths in the middle, um, I mean, I'm sometimes not certain where we are. And that's not necessary to be absolutely sure where you are, but I think um, the strong gesture, off, particularly when you're talking about you know, real brainstem stuff like thirst, um, it goes a long way. Um, and uh, if you had done it in a single arc, how, how might you have done it, do you think? How might you have used the the materials? I mean, would the violin have sort of more slowly built? Would that yeah. have been the line? Would the yeah, runner I think, I think we, we had sort of a, an earlier version that, that played around with that. It, it just sounded, it didn't sound as interesting, I guess, ultimately. So it's sort of a balance of what are we it could go on Dayline then, maybe. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> and today we present Thirst. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it just wasn't as, as yeah. sort of musically interesting. Mm -hmm. Where do you think, um, and we'll move on to the next story, um, but uh, where do you think a piece like this and the techniques like this um, that you use to make this piece would, could, could air in, in your personal experience of doing radio? In other words, mm. where, where might a piece like this go? Where, you, where might you pitch a piece or, or another venture like this mm. in, in, your own, in your own sphere? Maybe in Norway? No, there's something in Norway. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, they're really thirsty in, in Norway. <laughs> they're really thirsty up there. Yeah, there's really not a format for, at least in kind of my immediate world, um, for it. Uh, uh, although there was a lot of support from KQED and our general manager um, was really fantastic. But yeah, I don't think there's really a format. Certainly not with our local news or the California Report. Now that we don't have hot soup anymore, um, there's less of a place to put really creative work, at least out of KQED. So it's the old, you know, if the tree falls in the forest kind of thing. Um, I mean, what can you imagine would be a forum for commission pieces on? Mm. I kind of, I, I mean, I, th uh, I sort of imagine these pieces actually being played live, um, mm -hmm. more sort of in a symphony hall. Um, I, know, I don't know that our piece commands a symphony hall, certainly I'm not saying that, but just... Oh, it's, it's not too far away. But, um, but I do think that these kind of, you know, more musically interesting pieces where you're actually playing around with left and right speakers as well and doing interesting things with surround sound could, 
it could be sort of a really fantastic two-hour event at the San Francisco Symphony Hall, you know, with a collection of pieces, something like that. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. All right. All right, the next piece we're going to hear is by Anne Hepperman and Kara Oler, and it's called And I Walked. They play a game here, but nobody watches from a box seat. The players are called wets by those who hunt them. They cross a hot desert, a dry desert, and they cross with one or two gallons of water. They walk 30, 40, 50, 60 miles in order to score. The goal line here means not six points, but a job. Here are the rules. Get caught, and you go back to Mexico. Make it across, and you get a job in the fields or the back rooms. Don't make it, and you die. Crucé la semana pasada. Sí, caminé tres días, tres noches caminando. Este, íbamos cuatro personas, solo caminando por el desierto. I walk all day on the sun. By the end of the day, I only had one gallon of water. I started with two gallons. Un traguito nomás y mojarse los labios nomás. In the morning, started walking again. Walk all day, and then still walked part of the night. found the body of a man believed to be an illegal immigrant hanging from a tree in the desert. The deaths bring the total number of deaths by crossers in Arizona to 106 for this year. Authorities People have died trying to cross the Mexican border into Arizona. There are no springs or streams and no one lives here. No one. But still they keep coming day after day, night after night. Some will move only during daylight because they fear snakes. Some refuse to wear hats. And I cannot help but wonder what kind of experiences produce people willing to take on such ground. It's sign of desperation. They pay better in the U.S. than here. I've just arrived from work, and I start at 7 in the morning, and then I finish at 6. And they paid me $6 for the whole day. If they could live this fairly good life at their places, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be here. With heat and thirst, the body temperature soars and the brain seems to cook. The flesh feels electric with pain as each cell screams out its complaint. People in such circumstances tear off their clothes in the hope of being cooled. Sometimes the border patrol finds corpses with the mouth stuffed with sand. Bravo 14, Bravo 1. One incident that I came upon was my eye caught this one bush and I noticed there's some legs. There was someone lying down underneath a bush. I thought whoever it was was deceased, but when I got up on her, it was a female. She was lying down on her stomach, ready to die. You start blistering. A lot of blisters on, on your 
mouth, around your lips. You start hallucinating and you start thinking, oh, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. But, but you can't think clearly because it's not, it's not you anymore. You start thinking about death. You start thinking if you're going to heaven or if you're going to hell or... I mean, like, if you're going to die in the desert, then you're not going to be found by anybody and you're going to be eaten by animals. The coyotes wanted to eat me. There are a lot of coyotes. The animals wanted to eat me. There were five, and I was staying still and quiet. And they were approaching me, so I put my bottles around me to scare them off. And I had a lighter that I used to fend them off. And I was by myself. The animals were waiting for me to die. You don't even think. You don't even think, you don't have no, no brain to think about, about anything. Coyotes. A lot of coyotes. People going to the United States, hoping to find a job and send money to their families back home and what they find is death. They never make it over there, and they never make it back home. The desert tonight is an enormous theater full of tracks made by men and women, and sometimes children, all inching north. They play a game here. We play a game here. So, so you hear we have a, a really an extraordinary drama being played out with thirst as as the quite literal theme here. Um, explain to me what your original conception was and how, if at all, you deviated from it as you went about collecting actual sound. Well, we definitely had the idea for what elements we wanted to use, but and you're down in Flagstaff, so if somebody says thirst to you, you think. <laughs> Yeah, we think border yeah, desert. Yeah. And we yeah. had talked about doing this story for a long time, but not necessarily in this way. And then mm -hmm. when we heard about the call for entries, it was just perfect because we had already, I think, kind of conceptualized what we wanted to do in a way. And then thirst be the theme. And did uh, Bowden's writing immediately suggest its own? Well, once yeah. we found it, um, I had interviewed Rick Moody, and we knew we wanted some kind of literary piece or essay that had that theme and he had a friend who was a writer in Tucson, Stacy Richter, and she said, you need to get in touch with Charles Bowden. As soon as we read the first line, we knew that was what we wanted, so we called him up and he agreed to do it. No, it's, it's uh, 
very effective because it really does evoke just the, the stakes here. Um, I mean, for me, the, the real pivotal sound is that guy saying, um, you know, everything's better in the United States, and then goes on to tell the story of getting $6 for like a whole day's work. Um, and then we hear about what these people are willing to do to their bodies to get that. Um, why did you use the, uh, and, and, and how did you compose the, the news stuff? Well, originally we thought we were going to juxtapose the news a lot, like just go back and forth with like people's real experiences and then with like how stark and cold, you know, when it's presented, it's like, you know, 10 bodies found and, yeah. and this way we'd have someone saying, well, this is why I came and this is what I was thinking and then. But are these real newscasts or are these, are these the, wire copy oh, yeah. read? They're wire copy. They're wire so they're read, your readers reading real wire copy. Right. And, and you've altered it to make it sound like it's sort of a radio or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder if you need that. I really, I wonder if you needed that. And, and, and here's the thing that I thought of when I was listening to that, because I, I did get the sense of a radio. And the contrast that came to me was not the news story or the, the text of the news story, but the idea that people would hear that news story in their car, whisking past the places where these people were you know, dying of thirst, and it would be air-conditioned car, and it would be very, very comfortable, and I don't know how you would necessarily evoke that, but you don't evoke that in, in that material. And it, and it seems next to just this really stark, honest, kind of gut-wrenching stuff. I mean, I wonder if you need it. I mean, because we certainly do get the sense that people are going to die out there. I think maybe it was just kind of a shocker, like like this is what you hear, and like this is this mm -hmm. is actually what's what's happening, right. to kind of jolt you out of the piece for a second, and then you're back in. You know, I um, I really I really love this story, and, and part of the reason I loved it is because I I began to think about all different kinds of things that were going on inside of it, and and again for me, and you know I'm not offering this as a suggestion per se, but. The, the thing that was fascinating to me was how these people were taking their bodies and wagering it for $6, that, that that's what was going on. And I'm wondering if you certainly get that, but uh, I might have wanted to hear that sound again just to remind me what these people were doing, because you certainly get into the sort of voyeuristic, bar, almost barbaric fascination of, of these people declining and, and the story of, you know, the animals watching the guy, or, you know, just to remind, because you do use repetition in the music and the sound design. Um, you know, how did you, how did you structure where the story was going to go once you evoked the news and the death and, and Bowdoin's literature? Well, we wanted, we wanted it to build. I mean, in a way, we kind of wanted to have it mimic the walk in a way. We wanted it to build to the point where, you know, somebody actually dies and, and evoke that, that feeling of increased anxiety and desperation. So that was our ultimate choice mm -hmm. in, in terms of building it that way. And luckily we had kind of a ready-made outline with Bowdoin's essay in a way, because he, he did the walk himself. And so it starts off with like, you know, I'm, I'm excited to make this walk mm -hmm. and this is what it's going to bring. And then, this is you know, you, you slowly kind of lose it mm -hmm. when you're walking out there. You know, another sound that occurred to me, I mean, I love the, the talk of the plastic jugs that he takes two gallons, you know, as you go through the piece to get a sense that the water is depleting 
I mean, you know, a jug sounds one way full, and it sounds another way empty. Not that you'd want to literally evoke that, but, but, but still, you know, you can tangibly see what's being wagered by just thinking about, as time goes on, that jug is getting emptier and emptier and emptier. Um, where did you find the narratives of uh, the immigrants? We uh, went down to Agua Prieta, which is the sister city in Douglas, Arizona, and we were lucky to have... Um, oh, it's in Mexico. It's in Mexico. Uh, a man by the name of Tommy Bassett, who works with Healing Our Borders, who says, I'm going to take you to this migrant shelter where people come. The, what happens is the Border Patrol takes the people from the jails and drops them off in Agua Prieta, and they see a video in, in jail of this... Um, shelter called the Sacred Family Parish, and they can go there and they get dinner and help if they want to go back, or they can choose to cross again. So he, he took us down there and we talked to people down there. Now, now Bowden certainly describes these journeys as a game, a, a kind of a, I mean, he doesn't specifically lay out some sort of, you know, capitalist exploitation notion in there, but that there's certainly the sense that these people are powerless, yet, you know, a Mexican hearing about this journey might also view what these people have done as heroic, completely heroic. Um, do you think that this piece leaves you with a sense that these people are heroic or pathetic or both? Does it leave room for all those possibilities? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, there are incredible people who we met and the stories that we heard I couldn't do it, you know. I mean, I gained such a, a, a respect for their willingness to take a risk to try and change their lives. And I think what he meant, in a way, um, uh, just because the border's been more militarized recently, uh, people are being pushed into this sector mm -hmm. where they have to walk three days, where before they didn't have to walk that far. So. You know, that's the only place really where you can't get caught so much, but you're taking a huge gamble there. Yeah, how would you evoke those contextual details? Because there is a political overlay here that if you get into that, you know, you have to have, you know, experts talking and then suddenly you're, yeah. you know, you're listening to Morning Edition, you know. Um, <laughs> so how, what's, how do you, how might you do something like that? With this piece? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, how, I mean, obviously there are details that you can put in that radically change your view of the voices that you're hearing, but the ways of putting those details in are, are kind of problematic. Yeah. Yeah, we had to just skip those details. <laughs> yeah, you had to, to skip. Right, it was, it was none of those details. Right, right. Well, it's a you know, really interesting story. Where do you think this would uh, play on the air, if yeah. anywhere, either in your radio world or, or things that you've heard? It's already played. At our st it's already played at our station. Member stations? <laughs> Member stations could, could play. Um. Great. Yeah, and okay. did you get any response? Any, I mean, was it played in a show and here's something about thirst? Or how, I mean, how, how was it contextualized? We, we well, inserted it in All Things in, Considered in, in our, Morning Edition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our Good for you. So, but, and it was actually during the same... Um, day that Morning Edition was doing their three-day series on border crossers. Oh, great. So it was interesting. Well, that works nicely. Mm -hmm. Well, again, thank you very much and congratulations. Thank you. <laughs>
We're going to move along to our next uh, piece. I want to remind you that obviously if you have questions for any of the people, you know, save them up and when we get to the end there will be time to uh, ask your own questions. Do is cool, huh? You know, um, is by Sean Cole. He's our producer on the end here, and the name of the story is X Town. The Quabbin Reservoir serves 46 cities and towns in Massachusetts, mostly in the Boston area. On an alphabetical list of those cities and towns, number one is Arlington, where I happen to live. When I first heard that four towns were flooded to build the reservoir, I imagined a little Atlantis down there, but the water coursed through some intact village on its way to my faucet, and it was kind of haunting. But the reality is even more haunting particularly for some of the people that used to live in the towns. And the longer they talk about Dana, Greenwich, Prescott, and Enfield, the more the four towns tend to meld into one town, an idyllic place they can still rebuild in their minds. It was a very interesting little town. I remember a double-day store. They had a store, we had a hotel. I remember the common and the church. They had schools. Schools. A congregational church. They had a town hall. They talk about the farms and the mills, and they talk about the river. The Swift River. It's three branches defining the valley, giving it its name. The train ran parallel with that river right through the towns. It was called the Rabbit. So we had the rabbit, and the rabbit left in 36, and then we knew we were doomed then. This is where my grandmother, my father's mother, lived. And then this little house right here behind My name is Robert Wilder. I was born in Enfield, Massachusetts. I left there in 1938. Consequently, now this is all under 107 feet of water. So in order to go home again, I, uh, I would have to uh, have scuba gear. Bob Wilder wasn't even born yet when plans for the Quabbin began. It was around 1890 that Boston started searching for a solution to its water shortage. The story goes that an engineer was fishing in the Swift River Valley and noticed it made a perfect bowl. And if the river was dammed in just two places, that bowl would fill up. Any altitude was over 500 feet above Boston. So an engineering mind very quickly says, well, if you can deliver that to Boston, uh, you won't have to pump it. The Quabbin was in the planning stages so long that a lot of people thought it would never be built. But then, in little more than a decade, the state forced everyone in the valley out of their homes, shortchanging them on their houses and land. That was my childhood, is listening to people talk about who was moving. This is Lois Barnes, former resident of Prescott and Greenwich. How soon they were moving, where they were moving, who didn't want to move. I, made I, me a radical. <laughs> it really did. <laughs> how so? Well, because it, it made me feel that the state could not be trusted. And it will always be that way in, in my family. Always we will. I never go to Boston. I would never go to Boston if my life depended on it because there's so much anger at what they did and the unfeeling. There was no safety nets. We were just thrown out. Losing your home may be one of the most traumatic things that can happen to you, especially when you're a kid. Still, after 65 years, I thought everyone who was thrown out of the valley would have gotten over it. But some of them haven't. And hearing how the Quabbin was built, I can kind of understand why. The towns weren't just destroyed. They were unmade. By 1936, hundreds of workmen from Boston were swarming the valley, 
felling nearly every building, every tree. At the end of it, we would go over and watch, and they would pile up the piles, not only of buildings that were knocked down, but of the brush that had been cut down. They would push brush, buildings, anything that was left into a pile and light a match. I think the best description uh, would probably be it was like stepping into hell because the whole valley was afire. It was fire, fire all, all the time and smoke. There was a real, real feeling of, you know, this is the end. <laughs> this is the end. But it was heartbreaking too because now for the first time looking at the denuded land you could see the bed of the railroad track you could see the path of the river so clear so well defined and it didn't look so large it looked smaller than the valley looks much smaller because it wasn't filled with things it took seven years for the valley to fill up with water a lot of the people forced out of the valley settled in the surrounding area. Most of them are dead now. Those who remain tend to hold on to what's left of the lost towns as much as they can. Some of those artifacts are kept at the Swift River Valley Historical Society in New Salem, Mass. We made a little schoolroom here. Former Greenwich resident Harvey Dickinson showed me around the museum. But anyway, there's some school bells. This is the bell that used to bring me back to uh, class. So a lot of the, a lot of the, I can't say a lot, people who did live in a valley like to come back and see these things. They can relive some of their childhood here. And some of them can relive their childhood by visiting the actual land that surrounds the Quabbin. That's something I wasn't expecting to hear. Most of the land that was taken to build the reservoir is still above water. So some people who lived in the valley will go back and visit their old roads and cellar holes. They visit cellar holes, the way some of us might drive by our childhood homes. And the thing they say about visiting the Quabbin, along with how nostalgic it makes them, is what a beautiful place it is now, full of trees and wildlife, clean shoreline, and how they wouldn't change it back if they could. It's very hard for people to change, and I find that I had adapted to that whole concept that that's what life is all about, it's change. And therefore, I've seen life as a challenge rather than as a fixed place, even though I long for that fixed place sometimes. Even Bob Wilder, the angriest of the former Valley residents I've talked to, says his anger's been diluted by the waters of the Quabbin. He says he's realized over time that what happened to his hometown wasn't simply a tragedy. After all, he says, two and a half million people in the Boston area needed water. And what would he rather have done? Let them go without? It was almost the most you could possibly give, you know? When I joined the service and we had a hot war going and I went and did that, I thought that was the greatest contribution in my life. Until later in my life when I realized, no, it wasn't. That was my life. This is two and a half million lives that we were affecting. There's the contribution.
not that it matters particularly, but uh, of all four, this, is, this one is the least explicitly about thirst, um, although certainly we get a sense of, of water and, and you know, the context of why the dam was put in is all about thirst. Um, for me, what's most successful here is just how you deconstruct why the water comes out of your faucet. I mean, in some ways, just hearing the faucet ambience, you know, puts you, you know, in one of those, I mean, that, you know, that, that's, that, that ambience normally you could imagine as being kind of gratuitous, but in this particular way, you present this ambience and then you open up this whole entire world. What was your original conception and how did you deviate from it once you got into the interviews and that sort of thing? My original conception was actually to use only um, their voices, the voices of the people that I talked to, and, and to have one person representing each town, <clears throat> have them introduce themselves, um, and to you know talk about what the towns were like, which they ended up doing in a much shorter form than I imagined, and then you know how they you know and basically take you through the same process. Um, and I was hoping that, you know, the towns would sort of overlap as well, that someone from one town would end up talking about another one and I could make transitions that way. And I actually said in my application, uh, in, when I submitted, the idea that I didn't want to get into how the reservoir was built, you know, the, all the history behind it, which is exactly what I ended up doing. Um, and I think, and I actually, my first cut was all, the, all of the tape and I only got in my mind through halfway halfway through the story with only using tape. And I realized that I was putting a lot of tape in that I didn't particularly like, but I just needed it for transition. Mm -hmm. um, and so I basically just said, you know, I'm gonna take the, my favorite parts and just sew them together. And then with the putting the history in, I, I just thought that it, it gave you, uh, or gave one a good context of like, you know, the scope of this you know, how it came into being and, you know, sort of leading up to being what I hoped to be the climax of people being forced out, you know. Um, the, there's a tension, though, in, in, the, uh, in the way that you tell this particular story in that the people are described as being shortchanged. Um, I mean, did they, I mean, did they lose their homes and, and not get paid for them? I mean, it was... Yeah, it, I didn't explain that too well in the story. They, they basically um, were paid for their homes, um, but not paid the market rate. And as the so day... So eminent domain. Yeah. Here's the deal. Exactly. Right. And as, as flooding day got closer and closer, the, you know, the amount of recompense dropped. So it was like, well, that's we a offered great, That's a great fact. Right yeah. There. And it, yeah. Yeah, it's... Should have yeah. put it in. Yeah, but I mean, and not to be too journalistic about this, you know, when I'll go on. It, what? <laughs> no, nothing. No, no. But but the uh, you know, I, I, and I've done a lot of reporting out in the Pacific Northwest about dams. I think they're absolutely fascinating and unreported. And and there's a there's a kind of a, and the Three Gorges Dam that's now going into China. There's all kinds of great reporting about. The, the upheaval and the transition that takes place. The, you've described, you've chosen as your model a kind of government comes in and takes over. But in, in, in a lot of the sound, you get a sense that these people were complicit in their own demise in some ways, I mean, that they're part of it, particularly at the end when they all sort of accept the their loss of their towns. So in, in a way, another way of thinking about this piece is you're kind of showing a ritual where people are kind of complicit in the complete remaking of, of their world. 
Um, I mean, I, by the end, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that they're still angry because I, I think that they've really accommodated and there's kind of a mystery I want to know more about. Right. And that was, I mean, the two things that surprised me most talking to them was first that they were angry. Like, I, I had all of these questions, you know, as to like, you know, how do you feel about it now? And like, do you ever feel like your home was taken away from you? And, and I asked them, but like when I talked to that, the angriest guy, Bob Wilder, he didn't even let me get there. Because, I mean, he was just like bilious with anger from the beginning, you know, even before I turned on the tape recorder. And so that was the first thing that surprised me. And the second thing that surprised me... But he's me, the guy who also says at the end that, you know, right. it was like patriotic duty. Right, it. and that was the second thing was like I, how, That contradiction is, it, it's sort of unremarked on um, in, in your piece, but right. it's fascinating to right. me. And I said to him, you know, like how, do you, like, how do you reconcile those two feelings? And he was like, you know, he was basically saying, you know, I had to. Like, it's 65 years ago, and like, you know, the, the, he talked a lot about this, and, and I only got to use a little bit of it, of like, you know, um, thinking of all of the people that needed what the Valley had to provide. And it was, he was kind of, well, he, and he kind of says, he was like kind of proud of it, you know? I mean, he was proud that like the Swift River Valley could give, you know, and he thinks in archetypes like the children of Boston, you know, and keep them from, you know, dying of thirst, not that they would have, but. <laughs> but it, it, it you know. I mean, that's, it's, it's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it's it's outlandish in some ways, but it really is true. Yeah, um, I'll just throw this out at you. Um, could you have begun this piece just with the sound of the unmaking of the town? Because that that's the most bizarre kind of anthropological phenomenon that takes place here. P the idea of people going into their towns and taking them apart. Um, th th that's that really was fascinating to me. Yeah, I kind of wanted to build up to it, you know, and to like. Basically, yeah, just slowly build and talk about that. Because that was, you know, when I, again, like as I say in the piece, I, I thought, and the, actually the myth in Boston at least, and in, I, you know, when I talk to different people about the Quabbin, the myth is that there's still a town under there. And I don't think a lot of people know that they took it apart first. And there are even like stories like, oh, when the water reaches a certain level, you can see a steeple, you know, which is absolutely not true. And so that's, you know, I was like, you know, steeple under, town underwater, Atlantis, great, I'm after that, you know. Except, except both can be true. I mean, the, the myth, in fact, evokes precisely the feelings of longing that, that you're going for here. And the fact that the town was deliberately unmade is either an assault on the myth or it involves some sort of engineering detail that, again, you know, I think helps the story. Yeah, I was wondering if I should put in like the reason people that, don't drink water that has steeples in it or something. But, well, exactly. Yeah. And like they and that they, you know, clear the land because and also the land around where the flooding is because, you know, if it falls where there's rotting wood or whatever, it's going to pollute the water. And so they needed to clear the watershed. And I thought about putting that in, but I decided not to. So. Um, how many <laughs> who not told that this was about thirst would have thought of thirst in listening to this story, do you think? A few. All right. Um, let's go to the last story. Anyway, thank you very much. Sean. Sure. It's terrific. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I just, you know, this is just fun. Just because when I was a newscaster at All Things Considered, and Alex sometimes was like my writer, he would throw shit like this into the stories. <laughs> um, the title of this is Vaji Jamjazag. 
Is that close? No, that, that yes means no, that was not close. <laughs> uh, are there any Hungarian speakers in the audience? It's Vaj Somjushak. Vaj Somjushak. Yeah. All right, this is... We could just go right back to newscasting immediately. I think we just, we are, the team is intact. Um, anyway, by Alex Van Oss, Vaj Shamjazag is our last story. Let's hear it. What's your favorite drink? My favorite drink? This is a good question. Hey, Bob. Please sit down, you and Bob. Hey, Take the seat here. That's George. Okay. And I'll be over there. My friend George Bean, age 75, lives in Fairfax, Virginia. He was born in Hungary, Budapest. There, as a boy, he got arrested one day by the Soviet police. At 11 o'clock, in the morning on February 6, 1945, it was a wintry day, two NKVD officers uh, knocked on our apartment door and they found a radio which at that time was a big deal, worked with batteries. And it had an earphone and they got very excited about it and they thought that this was some kind of a spy equipment and they told me that, well, you come along with us. I was sent to the Gulag along with my father, who was a cardiologist in Budapest. And as it happens, my father never returned, and I returned only 10 years later. And I'm heating up the broth from the chicken soup. You're looking at the matzo balls in the soup. And this was made from a halal chicken. Okay, boys, if you folks will sit down. Please sit down, George. A nyitott teherautón agyon fagyva megérkeztünk Páhiba. Ez a kis falu a Dunatisza közén. George Bian wrote a book about his time in the Gulag called Lost Years. It's about Siberia and hunger and thirst. Thirst in Hungarian is vaj, longing, or shomjúrság, just thirst. The Soviets put George and other prisoners in cattle cars on a train. They shunted east from Hungary across the whole Soviet Union, 7,000 miles to the sea. It took a month. They crossed seven time zones. The dead were dumped by the tracks. The Russian word for thirst is zhazda. On the train, you got a piece of bread and salty fish and no water. It is very dangerous if you are deprived of water and suddenly you can't get enough water. You drink and drink and drink until your brain registers that Hey, I had enough drink now. Uh, this happened uh, to me in Irkutsk. This is about halfway to Vladivostok. 
where they let us into a so-called banya, which you can call as a bath, where the water was coming from the showers, and instead of uh, cleaning yourself, you drank from the shower like mad, and many people got dysentery, and many people died from that. The last leg of the trip was a voyage over the Sea of Japan and Okhotsk, 1,500 miles north to Kolyma, Siberia, a police territory the size of France. The English word thirst comes from Old English thirst, dryness, from Old Frisian forst, from Old Norse thorskur, meaning cod dried fish. We were put into holds of big freighters, 6,000 people, and uh, again got salty fish and no water whatsoever for six days. If this trip would last 12 more hours, the whole ship would die. This is the real strength of the chicken, not a bouillon cube and water. It has coriander for one of the herbs, garlic, celery, carrots, cilantro, I don't know, I can't think right now, a whole bunch of wonderful things. Okay boys, if you folks will sit down, please sit down George. In 1968, I have uh, developed TB of my right kidney, which I picked up in the gulag, which required the removal of part of my right kidney. And after the operation, I was forbidden to drink any water. I was in a delirium and thought that I was again in Siberia, where they are not giving me any water. And fortunately, my wife was familiar with that uh, history of mine and she talked to the nurses who were giving me little ice cubics to suck on but uh, if they uh, wouldn't have done that I would have probably suffered even more. What's your favorite drink? My favorite drink? This is a Good question. My favorite drink is water. Cold water. Thank you. Thank you so much. That, that's terrific. Now, let me just theorize, and you can tell me to take a hike. Um, <laughs> you knew this guy, George, and had this fascinating gulag story. And then these uh, Third Coast people contacted you to do something about thirst, and you said to yourself, you know, I can, I can make that story work if I just frame it in thirst. Is that how this came to be? Uh, 
Partially, yes. Uh, John, I first of all want to confess that I didn't put this piece together. I had a helper, Charles Maines, who's in this, there he is. I really sent the cuts and just kind of waved my hand over the telephone several hundred miles away. Uh, yes, I knew George Bien because I helped him to uh, put his book into English. And there's so many stories in that book and that uh, was one of the uh, most powerful thing, how, how these people in the Gulag, which, uh, in which approximately 20 million people perished, how they were just shunted and given nothing to eat or given too much of the wrong thing to eat, like watermelons, uh, and, and they died. And so I wanted him to recount that, but I didn't know what he would say, so I just uh, interviewed him and then went from, from there. You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because often you, you do encounter characters who would make great stories or who have great stories to tell, but because of the kind of pre-existing categories of news, it's often difficult to justify why are we listening to this person's story and oh, there was a better one last week on you know some other network kind of thing. And so in a way, this abstract art-like use of the concept of thirst allows this fellow to be really a towering presence in this story and you can't, you almost can't imagine it um, in, in another context. I think that was really terrifically successful. Well, I hope that you know, Werner Herzog made a, a film, he's done this a couple of times, where he takes just an ordinary person and follows them, and they become extraordinary, you know. Now, in, in the sound design, um, first of all, did you have some of that chicken? Yeah, that's uh, Ellie Bien, uh, who's American, wonderful woman in very bad health now. But she got up, she had just had surgery, and she had insisted on preparing a, a, a little light Hungarian lunch, <laughs> which always has chestnut puree and whipped cream. And it's still with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. I mean, I, I just love how that scene, it, it doesn't... Well, here, here's the point. I didn't know she was going to be in the piece. We had done mm -hmm. our interview. I just kept the tape rolling, which is that important right. thing, keep it rolling. And she just wanted to show me the soup. And uh, my concern was that maybe I was exploiting her in some way, but it, it kept suggesting itself also as relief, as a, as a beat. And I didn't want people to think that we were really in the gulag, you know, for five minutes. No, it, 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 it evokes the story as, as a dream reference. It, it's, the story itself seems more like a dream because it's set in this very prosaic and, and just... Uh, warm, wonderful dinner scene. And she also gives you the ID. She says George first, so you, so you don't have to identify. She, uh, she's been his salvation because he, to this day, the thoughts of the gulag come up. He can't control them. Mm. But he's a well-adjusted person. When you ask the question, um, what's your favorite drink, did you know the answer before he gave it to you? No, that came at the end of the interview, and it caught him, and then his being caught, that caught me. Uh, caught being a euphemism for? 
Robert Bly uh, somewhere said that a good poem has to jump, kind of jump off the page, and I think that can be useful in, in doing a radio piece, that somehow even familiar material can become very strange territory, and once it does, then you might find something. Mm. And so this was an example of where something I thought was a pretty prosaic question, I thought he could have said, you know, scotch or something like that. And he said, water. And there was an energy there, absolutely electric. And that's why I repeated it, actually. Oh, it, it, you can hear the electric. Now, did you have this sound before? I mean, had you done this interview before this commission? No. 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 So. All right, well, thanks to all the panelists. Let's give them a hand and let's take some questions.